Welcome to the Investment Cuddle. I'm Gary, and I'm here with Philip. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about what to buy uh, with a focus on shares. So, Philip, last time we covered this subject, we talked funds and investment trusts, OICs and ETFs, and we didn't really focus very much on shares. So, we thought it would be good to maybe go through some of those today. So we've talked a little bit about inflation on a few of the podcasts previously. Do we want to just remind everybody what inflation is and why it's why it's an issue? Because it's a very topical at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a bit unfortunate because um, in a good world, you don't need to worry about it. But we have inflation to do. Inflation effectively is when the price of goods and services increase over a period of time instead of staying constant value. But it happens because more money is chasing either the same amount of goods and services or if it goes up really, really fast, more money is chasing even less number of goods and services. So when you have more goods and services relative to money, the prices go down. And when you have more money relative to goods and services, they go up. Right, so so we haven't really had much inflation over the last, I'm going to say, 10 years, let's say. Well, certainly I've not worried about it. You know, the Consumer Prices Index has been 2% or less. For most of the time. For most of the time. And you sit there going, suddenly we've had supply chain issues and inflation is now suddenly... I say suddenly, it's been coming it's been coming for a while, let's say. But suddenly everybody in a stushy about inflation. Because it's at eight, nine, you're hearing maybe ten percent talked about. How is it suddenly that we've gone from a situation where we had goods and services and a balanced demand, let's say, because inflation wasn't high, to suddenly to, to get that sort of inflation, there's a squeeze on supply. It's either because there's a squeeze on supply because of supply chain issues and things because of COVID, or it could be because there's a large amount of fiscal stimulus that means it's more money chasing goods and services. Now, there was a large amount of fiscal stimulus during COVID, and we have supply chain problems. So that's why most economists are saying, oh, it's a transitory. It'll be a very quick up and down just while we get ourselves back together. The fact that it's not transitory anymore, it seems to be more normal now that it's going to be higher for longer, means that it's a new world. Okay, because, yeah, I think if you talk to people at the moment, the inflation's pretty clear on cars. Food, energy, certain services. Yeah. You try getting a plumber, a builder, a decorator at the moment, you want the services a reasonable time, you're paying more money. Yeah, and so you've got a situation where the f- and the fuel costs, I guess that sits a bit within energy, are going up as well. So it's a little bit of a perfect storm. And I think previously we said, was well, does inflation matter? Well, it may matters to everybody at the moment because it's impacting their at, at discretionary ten, spend. At 10%, it matters. 1% or 2%, you don't notice the loss of purchasing power. 10%, unless your wages are rising in line with inflation you've got a lot less purchasing power. Right. So maybe an unfair question, but this current period has been likened to the 1970s. Is it the same? Now, it's difficult to tell. 
you can only really tell after the event when you look back. The 70s were really a function of what happened in the late 60s, where they won very loose monetary policies and loose fiscal policy. What that meant was they artificially kept interest rates lower than maybe the market would have demanded, and the government borrowed a lot of money and spent it. So in one sense, sounds very similar to now. The thing that's different is when it moved into the late 60s and the early 70s is there was no political appetite to kill inflation. No one was prepared to stomach a recession to kill inflation, to get rid of all the bad investments, the malinvestments, and move the unproductive bits of the workforce in the economy to the productive things that could grow. They decided to save jobs by keeping the zombies going. When you listen to what the politicians are saying now, sounds very similar. So the one thing a recession does that people don't talk about is it liquidates the things that aren't growing and allows that resources, whether that be labour and capital, to go into the things that can grow. So therefore, what we had in the 70s was stagflation where there was hardly any growth, but there was inflation. And it doesn't matter how much inflation you've got if you've got no growth. That is the worst of both worlds. High inflation and high growth is one thing. High inflation and no growth is disastrous. And this is the one where, again, and it's a political decision, I don't think the politicians are yet prepared to get rid of the zombies, the bits of the economy that are just not performing. They're wanting to protect them. So it could be. We run the risk of repeating the 70s. Okay, so we could we could be going down the road of the 1970s. But the, the difference, as I understand it, is that then there was inflation, which we've got now, but the interest rates that we've got compared to what they had are significantly different. So whilst some of the circumstances are similar, we've got an awful long way to go to get interest rates up to a level where you, you go down the road of real rates, where actually the interest rate is above the base rate and or the inflation rate so therefore you've got you've got a real rate a positive rate after inflation so, so in terms of the 1970s i think we're night and day yes and in no. some respects but the problem is though it's 70s was a political decision they didn't get, you look at 60s and the 70s it took them a long time to get there and again it's politics that drove it because they didn't protect jobs right not say no stop protecting the zombie jobs help people to move out of zombie jobs at zombie companies. The problem is also, the other one, there wasn't that much debt then. Debt was highly regulated. There were other controls. We still had a semi-gold standard. The pound, the government couldn't go berserk because it was a fixed exchange rate to the dollar via the Bretton's Woods gold system. It's only until the early 70s where it all flung loose. And this is where you're looking again, it's the government could never have got itself in the position it got now under the rules and regulations in the 60s. So, we, so we've got some uncharted territory to run down, I think, because, as you said, there might be a situation where the debt is the tail that wags the dog because we won't be able to raise interest rates beyond a certain level without breaking something. Yes, but then there are things that you don't... Should those things have broken years ago because they're already dead? Well, yeah, because I think, and I take us back probably more than 10 years ago, and I think you and I looked at each other and went, 
where's the inflation with all of this, what they classed as QE, the quantitative easing or money printing, which isn't quite quite right, but it helps to understand what they were doing. They're generating liquidity in the system. And all they did was did that on steroids in the pandemic. This is where you end up in a situation where you turn around and say, the inflation's now here, which we were wondering where it was 10 years ago or more. The genie's out of the bottle for me. I don't know how you quell that without, you know, people, as you said earlier on about goods and services, without people not wanting to have to go out and buy that stuff. So their, you know, their energy costs are so high, they won't look for another house. They won't buy that new car. See what I mean? I don't know how else you do that. But there are some other things we've got used to. Take at some of these technology companies that have been there. You look at Uber. You look at some of the others there. Are they really making money? Or is actually their bondholders and their shareholders subsidizing a market that basically can't compete? Because you look at some of these, you look at Uber Eats, you look at um, Deliveroo and all these other ones there. Are they really, are their shareholders and their bond, mainly their bondholders, subsidizing a market to make it look like that bricks and mortar retail can't survive? Not because they can make money and profits, it's because they can, out, they can outbid, like in a game of poker. You're, they'll run out of cash before I do. The game may now have changed. If the, if the tap of free money is, and infinite zero interest debt has disappeared, those companies won't last very long. And if you look at it now, there's now signs that the tech companies are getting rid of people because they can't, they can't, they're not sustainable. So you might find... Inflation's going to get worse because those services were artificially kept low are now going to snap back up to where they should have been for what the market price really means. That's what it costs to do. So Off on a tangent. Yeah, well, I think we just haven't really uh, answered the question in terms of how is it going to be because it, it's, it's really hard. We don't know. There's a famous quote from an American author, uh, Mark Twain. History never repeats itself. But it doesn't half rhyme. We won't repeat the 70s. Categorically, we won't. Might be very similar, but we won't repeat it. Because what made the 70s will not happen now. It's changed. But it might feel a lot like the 70s. Yeah, and I guess that comes down to the fact that I think the bear market, so the downturn in the 70s market, for example, so bringing this back to the kind of shares, what do you invest in, that... They had three bear markets in the 70s. Well, yeah, that's what I was just thinking. When you look at the uh, longevity of the bear market, all the bear markets, it was, you know, it, was, mm. it was down, I think, 80% at its, at its peak, yep. which isn't really very good because that's that actually a trough. So we're a long way off of that. The S&P's not quite down 20% yet, I don't think. Might have been, might, might be by now. So we're in bear market territory, but we're not, we're not horrendous, albeit you look at some of the tech companies you've talked about, they are down. Oh, yeah. Meta's down 48%. Some of the other SPACs, you know a SPAC that isn't down less, more than 70%, and that's quite an achievement to find yeah. one that's not Net- down more than 70%. Netflix? Yep. You know, a lot of these companies have dropped significantly. But I think for me, it's then, if you're going to be in a prolonged bear market, what do you buy? Where are you going to, or should you just sit on cash? So I guess that's the thing, right? Let's just say cash is king in this environment, right? Because you can spend it. Happy days. The thing about cash is cash always gives you opportunities. If you sit in cash for 10 years, you're going to lose shed loads of money, a purchasing power because of inflation. 
However, if you're waiting for the market crash, like it did in the 70s, and in the UK it crashed three times, the people who made the money was, oh, say for three years, splurge it at the, bottom, at the end of a crash. Say for three years, splurge it on the bottom of a crash. But you have to have the nerve to, to work out when. All right, so if, if you're looking to work out where the bottom of the market is, in my limited experience, that's incredibly hard. And actually, you want to see some sustained recovery. You know, miss, me as a mere yeah. mortal, before you, you might turn around and say it's a higher, it's a higher low. Than a lower high. That, yeah. But that's the crux of the problem. It is really difficult to do. Yeah. So one of the things, other things you can do is what they did in the 70s a lot was you don't overpay for growth. Beginning, there was the Nifty 50 companies in America, the tech companies of the times, Xerox, IBM. The difference between some of the tech companies now and then, they paid dividends. The problem was, though, their dividends weren't growing faster than their actual share price, and eventually it snaps. But again, the same thing happened to Microsoft in the late 2000s. Now, they didn't pay a dividend, but they got very, very good cash flow. The problem was, though, because of the boom for tech companies, their cash flow could not keep up the growth of their share price. What happened is it snapped quite drastically. So you can see that. When is your, say, cash flow growth growing faster than the share prices? That's maybe going, that can't go on indefinitely. Other metrics you can look at is, well, there's always this thing, go buy value, where you're buying cheap companies. You go, oh, but it might become a value trap. Well, you get the same thing with uh, growth companies. You can buy a growth trap. When you start looking at the numbers, but they started looking at it back in the times over the last couple of decades, and you're going, yeah, of the companies that were cheap, 30% of them got even cheaper. But at the same time, of the growth companies, 30% of them didn't hit their growth targets. Now. When you're going up, not hitting your growth targets, it's not the end of the world. When you're in a bear market and all you've got is growth, you haven't got cash flow, you haven't got your dividends to cover you, that's suicide. So you can suddenly find that the growth companies, you need to look at it going, are they at least growing their cash flow? And that's the most important thing, not their profitability. And then say, what am I paying? What's the relative value for that growth? Am I overpaying for that growth? And if you're overpaying for that, wait until it snaps back. But yeah. it's it's a judgment. It gets more difficult. It's not simple than just buy momentum. I think what you're describing is, and this starts to perhaps show value, which is probably a bad term to use, but to buy good companies. Well, no, because you can have you can buy good quality companies. That's what Terry Smith did. That's what Blue Whale did. That's what a lot of people who made a lot of money over the last 10 years have done. They bought quality companies with good growth stories that had good cash flow. Possibly is they overpaid for the growth. So they paid too much for the growth. Now, those two companies are still going to grow. But the rate you paid for it, it's not necessarily a great investment at the price you paid for it at that time. NVIDIA does make large uh, amounts of money with cash flow from selling all those uh, graphics chips. However. They can't grow that at the rate their share price has been growing because it expects you to go and double and double and double. And you can't do that indefinitely. So there'll be a come appointment like Microsoft did in the early 2000s where they become a very good buy because they inadvertently become a value stock. Because nothing in life ever reverts to mean perfectly. It always, when you have a big bubble, you have a big trough. 
It always overextends. It spends almost no time actually in the middle in the average. So text rocks, just like they were in the early 2000s, will be beaten up by hell. And that's where the Tiger Club, those hedge fund managers who came out of there, made the killing because they bent leveraged up on the tech stocks. They were value then. So, uh, other than just staying out of the market, because it's a scary place and we all want to uh, hide, maybe at the moment we'll avoid the tech stocks? Depends what you mean by the tech stocks. But well, yes. I think in the fact the fangs, so, you know, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, or Alphabet, uh, Alphabet at the Me- moment, better as Facebook is yeah. now. Though. At the moment, yes, because I think pers- I think they're overvalued for how much growth they can give at this mo- at this price. A couple of years' time, they might be value stocks because actually, people are underpricing their growth potential. But at the moment, I think they've overpriced their growth potential. So, so having a bit of dry powder, i.e., cash on the on the sidelines, is not going to be a bad. Even though you might be losing upwards of ten percent per annum. On that cash. Yeah. Because you're not earning, because we said earlier, because we've got no real rates, you're not earning anything in. It's almost totally losing against inflation. It's not not half against inflation. You might be offsetting by half a percent if you're doing well. Yeah, exactly. But this is. It's not funny, but that's just where we are. But the answer would be going, how can you say that? How do you know it's confidence? Three years ago, I started buying mining companies and commodity companies quite heavily. Why? Everyone laughed at me. Because they were a basket case. They couldn't control their costs. Historically, they wasted a load of shareholder capital. Everyone thought they were a waste of money. But you could see going, they were very good priced for the cash flow and cash flow growth prospects. Would I still buy them now? Yeah, but they're now starting to get more and more expensive because more and more people piling in. At some point, miners and commodity will become a bull market for those and it'll become bubble, just like it did 2012, 2014, when it tipped over. You know it is when they start doing lots and lots of mergers, acquisition, lots of debt. No one really cares about cash flow and profitability. That's the time because it, that's what it crashed last time. With things with reshoring, things didn't go too well during COVID with having everything outsourced manufacturing-wise to China. Had bot supply bottlenecks everywhere, even with logistics. So you're going to see let alone now the politics getting involved, you might find more and more stuff is going to be reshored into North America, other bits of Asia, and back to Europe. There ain't the capacity in those, most of those places to offset uh, China. So there's going to be more inflation there. But there's going to be opportunities for those companies that do do, because, shall we say, industrial companies that still manufacture stuff in Europe, North America, Japan, and Europe, You've got to be really good, obviously, you've gone to the wall years ago. So, if we're going to talk about companies that we would buy, I've got an opener for 10, which is not a growth company, per se, but a pharmaceutical company called AbbVie, Inc. It's an American company. They are heavily involved with development of drugs for various complaints, illnesses, so 260 odd billion market cap, pay a little a dividend of 3.8%. That's high value, high paid, dividend in America. Paid, paid a lot more than that before the, the share price went up over the last year. So they were, in terms of their share price, certainly in and around 
well, let's let's say the end of 21, 2021, they were in and amount or in and around eighty dollars a share. They're now sitting today around about one hundred and fifty dollars. Peaked out at sort of one hundred and seventy before this this downturn um, started. So they've dropped a little bit, but they've been a little bit more robust than other shares we've already mentioned. Let's just say that. So Avery's in the pharmaceutical area. What do you think, rather than be specific about Abvi, it's just one that we've picked as an example, in terms of pharmaceuticals in an inflationary environment, so you've got Johnson & Johnson, you've got AstraZeneca in the UK, um, and there's lots of other examples. What what do you think of that sector, let's say, within buying shares? Because you can pick your own favourite. So it's something you'd have to do your own research for. Um, because the individual companies within the sector are going to be quite different. But as a general sector, they have reasonable prospects. They are cash generating. Most of them pay dividends. They're good. Well, one thing last four years has shown is we're going to need more and more drugs and things of that nature and vaccines. So there's definitely demand going forward. Downside is, yeah, these things are expensive. The high regulated industries to get the drugs out of there. But there are prospects. They've been doing as an industry boring for a long time. Boring isn't always a bad thing. Now, there is one part subsector of that maybe you want to be careful of, and that's biotech. Should we say, there's been, there was a bit of a bubble maybe about five, six years ago in biotech where biotech, most of the companies there are very small research companies trying to develop a product, and they're quite small. They don't really have a product yet. And yeah, five, six years ago, a lot of cheap, very cheap money was very easily available from venture capitalist firms or debt firms. And a lot of them were listed companies and they got a lot of money, probably too early. You've got to be really careful out there when the biotechs, which ones are the guys that are just burning it, don't have a product, and which ones have a product. But that's a subsector and that's why you need to do your due diligence and investigate or pay a manager to look for that. So not a bad sector in an inflationary environment, potentially. They might be robust. They're still going to go down when the whole market drops because everything else does. People are then just going and going and selling everything to hide in a corner. But also you get some of your return back from dividends. It's not just capital. That's true. So it all depends what, what price you're buying them at. Okay, so that's pharmaceuticals. Now we're going to have a look at the food industry. Top pick for you here. Not that we not that we recommend shares, but is BNG Foods. So BNG Foods, at least at one point, they had the Jolly. I'm not going to say this, am I? The Jolly Green Giant. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> you know, ho ho ho. So you know, familiar in that sense, and they are a company that goes in and buys brands, basically. So. Uh, certainly significantly smaller than AbbVie. They're a $1.5 billion market cap listed on the New York Stock Exchange. They have, and you'll like this, Philip, 8.3% dividend. And if you don't like it, I like it. So for all of we've said, even if you've got this in one of your accounts where you have to pay some dividend tax to the US government, and I say it's 20%. Withholding tax. Withholding tax. You're still going to get... 6%. Um, so that's not too bad. Obviously, they make a profit. They were in the realms of north of $30 a share um, last year. They've dropped a bit in the current market. So they're 
roundabout, just just north of twenty dollars, and therefore the dividend yield's gone up. So hence why it's looking as healthy as it is. Whether that's maintainable or not is another matter. But again, that's a company that pays a good dividend. Share price is has been very up and down. Certainly during the pandemic, they were they were sub sub twenty dollars, so they've been cheaper. So in terms of food industry, in an inflationary environment, and we're not suggesting go out and buy B and G foods, but there's obviously again there's other companies out there. There's Nestle, there's, supermarkets, there's uh, Diageo, which obviously do the the, mm-hmm. the drinks. So it's all that kind of area. What do we? Are that, is that a robust or a good area to be in? Again, there's some bits in there that could be. One of the interesting ones, you look at the UK, Morrison's was recently taken over by a private equity firm. They obviously thought it was really cheap on the share market, hence why they went for it. You probably want to do, again, you want to do your um, due diligence and look at the companies because some of those are going to show good good levels of cash flow, good levels of growth. You've got to look at there is what's there, are they brands? Is it brands that give them the money? Because you might find that what was a great brand and very premium brand may not be as premium anymore because people just can't afford it in an inflationary environment. But it could be some of the ones with more of the staples where as long as they're not overly leveraged, they can control their cost growth. They could, they're going to be a steady plodder. Boring. But this is one thing. It's not going to be tech. So it's going to be considered boring. Well, and I think that's why their share price has been low, albeit mm. they, they, they do carry a fair bit of debt in the, in, in the example of, of B&G. But the point being, they're not, they're not a tech company. No, nobody wants to go and buy food companies when they mm. can go and buy the latest tech company yeah. over the last 10 years. So why would you? Talk tobacco. No, we're not talking tobacco. Oh, go on. I was going to go oil. Because I was going to talk diversified oil and gas as an example of oil and gas. Tobacco. Okay. This is obviously not going to turn into an ESG podcast, by the sounds of it, as we're going to now talk about tobacco and and, uh, and other other items. So, what about tobacco? Well, that's another interesting one. I mean, they have incredible pricing power for their products and incredible cash flow. However, they're probably the most anti. They're probably most opposite to ESG as you're going to get. Well, I don't know. They've they've been um, unloved for a long time. Well, this Whether is it's, you know, you've got what have you got there? You've got British American Tobacco. You've got Philip Morris International. You Atia in America. Imperial you've got Brands. Imperial Brands. So none of these guys have been particularly well loved, but they do pay a nice dividend. Yeah. I mean, for example, looking at one of the ones, British American Tobacco, for example, they were absolutely beaten up. About four or five years ago. Let me actually look at the date when they were actually beaten up. Sorry. Well, I'm just thinking, in terms of this company, so British American Tobacco, that's um, a UK-listed company. Tobacco. But it's a worldwide brand, a worldwide tobacco company. They own, they bought Reynolds America. So they're a big player in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're talking, you know, circa 80 billion. So a bit smaller than AbbVie, but certainly significantly larger than... B&G Foods, they pay nominally 6% dividend, roughly. Was 9 a couple of months ago. But the import- don't, don't tell me, tell me Philip, did you buy in at, at 9%? Yes, I did. <laughs> but the interesting thing was, you're looking at over a longer period of time, 
they were actually beaten up 2015, 16, 17. And they've been steadily increasing their cash flow, steadily increasing their dividends, and the market didn't care. When you look at them now, just recently they've spiked up. When we started having the inflationary problem, people started buying them again because they're heavy cash flow. And their share price is about where they were about six, seven years ago. Yet, their dividend and dividend cover, dividend cover is about where they were six years ago, seven years ago. So, last financial year, they paid a dividend of 215p per share. Five years ago, they were paying a dividend of 100p a share. The dividend cover five years ago was 1.45. The dividend cover now is 1.53. Okay, the market has so seriously undervalued its cash flow yeah, position. I think what we're saying is there's a company that in this current environment, inflationary environment, is doing better than it was share price-wise. But only very recently. As we said, one of the big issues with that particular sector is a lot of people now don't want to entertain that because they know what it, you know, they know they know what it is, and I know there's diversification into other products and what have you. But some people just don't fundamentally want to own a tobacco company. That, and the same would be true for energy. Yes. So okay, there's lots of stuff out there in the green energy space, but let's not. We're not going to go down the ESG route today. What about energy? And I'm thinking more about the uh, the gold, the black gold, the actual mine, the actual oil, actual oil companies, of which there's Exxon Mobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, Total, to name but a few of the oil majors, or Saudi Aramco, now the world's biggest company by market capitalization. Let's pick on Shell then. And the reason we'll pick on Shell is because they have recently shifted company headquarters from Holland over to the UK and now they've got rid of their B shares, A shares thing. Dual listing structure. The dual listing. They've got, you know, they, they are £170 billion market cap. They pay a 3% dividend and they pay this quarterly. Their share price certainly in recent times, has been really beaten up, as you said earlier on, down to sort of October last year, they were well well beaten up, and now it's done nothing but rise since then. Good sector to be in at the moment. I mean, everybody knows the fuel prices are up, and oil's, what, over $100 a barrel, and has maintained that for Many months now, yeah. And people have been talking about $250 oil, is that worth a, a punt in this environment? It is, to some degree, because I have done by funds that invest in oil companies. They, again, they're big cash flow generation. You need to be careful about how much debt they have and politics for those. This is a political industry. If they make too much money, governments come after them with full taxes. Also, the politics of where the oil is isn't necessarily nice, stable countries. Thinking of Shell in particular... Nigeria and Africa is one of their major sources of oil. However, they are moving to other sustainable sources. They're not investing as much in the oil and gas anymore, but that just means there's not going to be that much volume up. So demand stays where it is. 
vol- prices are likely to rise, which is why the projections there. It would do. I wouldn't bet the house on that market. You might find that actually some of the smaller players might be more interesting than the oil majors. One example was a company, American company that's listed on the London Stock Exchange, now called Diversified Energy Company. Previously, it was called Diversified Oil and Gas. They're taking gas wells and oil wells in Pennsylvania, in that area, the Appalachian Mountains range in, in, in America, and just running, the mill, running those oil wells down, but running them efficiently at these prices. You could say, why is this company listed in, in the UK and not in America? And the answer was, if you're not an oil major and you're not tech, Americans won't buy you. They are pure value play. They pay a hefty dividend. They pay a progressive dividend. Uh, And therefore, if you want that sort of investors, that's London. Yeah. And I mean, when you talk about a a different play, you know, these guys are a billion pound market cap compared to Shell that's 100. Yeah. Relatively small. But so, yeah. So they're paying a 10% dividend at the moment. They're not, you're not going to get much capital out of them because they're a dividend player. Yeah, the share price hasn't really done much since 2018, other than, you know, dips and uh, peaks and troughs, but it's pretty it's pretty flat over the last five years. But they do pay a quarterly dividend, so if you're looking for regular dividend income, but they will be subject to withholding tax. So, yes, and because they're an American company, you'll need to hold the... W-8-B-A-N form to get rid of the half of the American withholding tax or hold it in a SIP where your provider has uh, done the paperwork with the American Inland Revenue Service, such as Hargreaves Lands and AJ Bell, where you can get zero withholding tax on your dividends. But because it's an American company, there will be a w- most people will have a withholding tax on it. But they're an interesting one. They're a billion, like, they're a billion pound company. Mm-hmm. market cap they're in the FTSE 250 but because of they're an energy play and a value play they decided there's no point in listing in America because the American market ain't interested in anything other than growth and tech which might be interesting going forward okay so that so that's some uh, we've covered we've covered the basics of um, health food oil and, oil and gas and tobacco which yeah, so so you mentioned miners earlier on. So one of the ones I was going to look at, which may be slightly controversial, is Polymetal International. So at the moment, they are a billion pound market capital, capitalization, paying a 30% dividend. And there's a good reason why that is, because most of their operations are in Eastern Europe. Well, not just Eastern Europe, a Russian... They're Russian. They're Russian. So there are a lot of political problems. You might find that they're looking like they're paying a 30% dividend on the grounds that no one actually thinks they'll actually be allowed to pay their shareholders any dividend. There are lots of interesting places in the metals and commodities and mining area, but politics comes into it. Because, say, November time last year, polymetal didn't look that bad. But I think that's it, isn't it? You turn around and saying they have dropped 80-90% in value. Because they're untouchable. Because of where they're operating. So, again, I think that would probably come into the realms of a speculative offering. 
Yeah. Not that not that you would touch them with a barge pole, but I'm just saying in speculative offering. And you sit there saying, well, if you're, you know, part of a good diversified, well, maybe not a good diversified portfolio, but certainly a diversified portfolio, you'd turn around and say, well, yeah, there's a bit of capital in something that may go to zero, potentially, but also if it got anywhere near where it was before the latest political unrest, you'd be on a really good return. But it also shows you this is when you get into miners, particularly, there are more and more political risks because of where the mines tend to be, the new mines tend to be set. So you have, you can't just look at the field numbers because polymetal in November were looking very good. It's pure politics that's destroyed polymetal. So you have to look at where is the mine based, not just where is the company based. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's fair if you turn around and saying, you know, you can get, you know, let's say some of the some of the gold miners, they can be, you know, South Africa, Canada, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan Uzbekistan, you know, Russia. Russia. So polymetal is an interesting example. Technically, it's a Cyprus-based precious metal company, yet all its mines are in Russia or Kazakhstan. So, and it's listed on the London stock market. So, just because it's listed here, doesn't you have to know where the mine is? Because Cyprus isn't the problem, it's where the mines are. So you can find out that the market is basically saying they won't be allowed to get the money out of Russia to Cyprus so it can pay its shareholders. So it has no money to pay the shareholders. So politics is going to be important here. You need to do some due diligence about where are you investing. There's a good summary there. I mean, we've talked some US shares, some in the UK, but not necessarily with their operations in the UK. We didn't really cover any emerging market shares, but they are... Emerging markets I would necessarily took out individually because they're illiquid and most brokers won't offer you them. So for most retailer people, if it's not a fund, you can't, you can't buy emerging markets. The thing that's worth saying is what we talked about when we talked about these individual stocks is very similar to what we talked about the funds and investment trusts and the same philosophy of what they're investing because it's the same sort of philosophy of how you get the returns out of them. The only thing here is you're doing it actively for individual companies. Yeah, and I, and I guess you've got more. So you've got more specific risk, you know, for going for individual companies than you would across an investment fund. Yes, because you now have individual company risk. You're not just looking at the sector. You've also got to pick the companies within the sector that are run well, not just the sectors doing good. Okay. All right. So I guess the last bit there is a lot of those companies we looked at pay a dividend. So there's income coming from that. So even if you invest your principal and the inflationary environment means that the bear market continues to roll for a while, an indefinite period, as we said, the 70s is the bear market, probably on and off was about three plus years long, similar kind of in the 2000s as well, after the the, the tech bubble burst. So you continue to get that income, and if you don't need the income, you can reinvest it. And also, most companies also try to grow their dividend over time. Not every year, but over the longer term, you get, it's not just the dividend, it's the growth of the dividend, because they're growing the company. Yeah, so it's a good point. Growing dividends is also good. So there are some opportunities out there, even when the market looks like it's on its knees. But yes, don't try and um, pick 
the bottom of the market because you're doing better than me if you do. Well, what, I've never I, achieved it. I think I think no, and I think the the principle being that what goes down can go down faster. Yeah, <laughs> can come up and then go back down again, <laughs> even lower. Uh, what was that? The, the story of um, oh, what's the guy with the apple? Newton. Yes. He, oh, he made an awful lot of money in the South Sea bubble. Sold it at a very nice profit. It went up further. He panicked, bought in, lost everything. Yeah. Had to pull levers with his mates to get in the job as master of the mint. Yeah. So here, here ends the lesson. Be careful what you uh, don't don't chase. So um, don't chase the market. If you think things look like they're turning around. Stick with the fundamentals, and if you've not normally invested in a bear market, be patient, I would say. All right, so it leaves me to say thank you to Philip, and we'll see you next time. This programme has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities. Nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.